these paradoxes that we find in the Bible, they, they actually are, are God revealing things to us uh, that might be difficult for, I, I believe, a few reasons. So, some reasons that we struggle with these paradoxes are, are one, uh, we are actually created and God is creator. So what that means is, is that because God is infinite and you are finite, we should expect that there are some things about God that we just aren't going to get, right? Now, remember, like just because we don't know everything about God, it doesn't mean that we can't know anything about Him. But at the same time, we know that God has revealed Himself to us in ways that at times we will not understand because we are not Him. Uh, But there's a second thing that I think prohibits us sometimes from understanding how God's character fits together, and, and that is the fact that we are sinners, And sin has so affected us that it even has affected us to the core of who we are and the way that we think about the world. Uh, So not only is the world broken, the way that we think and understand is broken. And and that's part of our sin nature. You can imagine that that makes life difficult at times, right? And it can also make it difficult for us to understand who God is. Uh, In fact, even as Christians, we wrestle with sin and wrestle to understand God and His character as revealed to us. Uh, There's another reason, I believe, that we sometimes don't understand how things fit together, and that's the issue of timing. So sometimes God says, there are these two things that are going to happen, and it looks like these things cannot fit together, and he says, just wait, I'm going to show you how this all comes together. Well, in the Old Testament, uh, we, we understand that the Jews of the first century saw a number of ideas about the nature of the coming Messiah, and they at times wondered, how do these seeming opposite ideas actually come together? Uh, here's one case in point. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 that we read before the service gives us this glorious image of Jesus Christ or the Messiah that would come. And we are told that in that image, that vision, that this son, this one like the Son of Man actually descends on humanity in a chariot of clouds. Now, who rides clouds? God rides clouds, Right? And so you see this glorious, godlike image of this character descending from heaven to set things right. That's amazing. But then you get to Isaiah 53. And you find this image of a suffering servant who is going to come and is going to lay down his life for many. And through his wounds, others will be healed. And so you're sitting there thinking to yourself, how do these two images of a Messiah fit together? How can the Messiah be this glorious godlike figure of Daniel 7 and then at the same time the suffering servant who's going to bring healing to the nations well that's exactly the kind of tension that we find in our text this morning Uh, you'll remember uh, we are right back in the middle of our amazing true story of Jesus uh, series in the gospel of Mark and just last week we unfolded the reality that Jesus shared that he was the Messiah and that he must suffer and die for his people And as he did that, you'll remember that Peter is in such disbelief, he says, I'll never let that happen. And Jesus says, that's absolutely a satanic thought, you need to get away from me. I love how Peter always says stuff like that, right? He just kind of erupts and you're like, that was inappropriate, that wasn't right, that wasn't good timing. You know what it is about Peter that I love? Peter says what most of us would say, but know better than to say. And he gets to represent us. And and I think that in Peter, what we see is is that we did not understand that Jesus must suffer and die. That's difficult for any of us to understand. Yet at the same time, what we are told is is that Jesus is also the King of glory. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see right behind this promise that Jesus must go to the cross and suffer and die, that He is also the King of unprecedented glory. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. See, Jesus is preparing these disciples for suffering 
with the reality of the glory of Christ. He says, catch this, I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer, but there is glory that is to come, and I want your eyes to be fixed on that glory. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to fix our eyes on that glory that we see in Jesus. Here's what we're going to see, our big idea this morning that we're going to be thinking through. It's this, the transfiguration, this utterly unique experience of humanity seeing the glory of God tells us that the glorious suffering Christ is both the culmination and climax of God's revelation to us. This is what the transfiguration teaches us. It tells us. It shows us. It shows us that the glorious suffering Christ is both the culmination and climax of God's revelation to us. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now the first thing that we're going to see is going to come in verse 1. But before we get there, let's pray and ask that God Himself would help us have eyes to see Him this morning. You pray with me? Father, this morning as we come into your word and as we look at Mark and we long to hear from you, God, we pray that you would help us to see you clearly. Father, you have given us your word so that we might see and understand and know you. And Father, we need the help of your spirit today. God, would your spirit, we pray, come and make clear who you are to us in a unique way. Do this in the glory of your name we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see comes in verse 1. And this is a tough verse where we are going to see that some will see the kingdom of God in power. Some will see the kingdom of God in power. Uh, Look there with me in Mark 9, 1 again at what it says. It says, and he said to them, being Jesus to the disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, I'm sure that you are wondering when and who saw the kingdom of God come with power. Anybody here say, like, I would love to see the kingdom of God come with power? All right, well, we're going to talk about that this morning. What is it that happened? When did this happen? Has this happened? This is a a difficult verse. Uh, If you were to pick up a commentary uh, like James Brooks, you'll find that there are about six different options that are often offered to explain what this means. Like when Jesus came with power, as he promised to do here. Some say this happened whenever Jesus died on the cross. And the veil, you'll remember, of the temple was rent from top to bottom powerfully. So that's one option that people give. Uh, Some say that what happened was when Jesus was raised from the dead, when God raised him up, that was a display of unprecedented power by God that fulfilled this text. Uh, Others will point to the ascension where Jesus was, of course, ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, saying that His work had been finished on the cross and achieved all that He set out to do. Uh, That's a third way. Uh, Another way that people look at it is they say, uh, this is actually an event that was fulfilled at Pentecost, whenever the Spirit of God was broadly poured out upon those who were there. Uh, Some look at this and say, well, I think the power was demonstrated in the kingdom uniquely whenever we saw uh, the church grow amidst great persecution. All of those, I think, are are good options for what might have happened here, but I don't think that's exactly what Mark has in mind in this text is the fulfillment of the kingdom coming with power. Now, why would I say that? Well, Every one of these views does face challenges, but I take this actually to speak of the transfiguration. Now, now why would I say that? Well, uh, one reason is, is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all immediately follow this promise with the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, where he reveals himself in unprecedented glory. 
And you might have a couple of questions as you are thinking about that, about how the transfiguration could be this. I mean, maybe there's some problems with that view too. And, and there are, there's some questions. For one, whenever you think about the transfiguration, you, you might say, but Jesus saying some would not die before others saw the kingdom's power seems to imply that some would die. And no one dies in the six days between when Jesus promises this and then the transfiguration takes place. So how could this be true if no one dies? Well, catch this. This verse, I believe, doesn't speak of the arrival of the kingdom. I believe it speaks of the ability to see it. In other words, I don't think that Jesus is saying the kingdom has not yet at all come to us. The kingdom has already come. We know uh, in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 1, he begins by saying that the kingdom of God is near. It's here. Repent and believe. See, Jesus isn't forecasting the arrival of the kingdom. That's happened. It's about a unique seeing of the kingdom in power. That's what he's talking about. See, immediately after this, Jesus takes three out of the twelve disciples and perhaps the crowd that were there, Peter, James, and John, to witness the transfiguration. And there they see an utterly unique and unprecedented demonstration of otherworldly power. See, clearly the Gospel writers understood the transfiguration to at least be a, a partial fulfillment of this, this promised here. I think it's clear. But, but a second problem you might have is if you understand the language that uses to describe the transfiguration and the coming of this kingdom, you'll notice that the kingdom, it says, that it is going to come, this demonstration of power, after its power, uh, after it has come with power in verse 1. That's what he says about the kingdom. Well, see, this speaks of the kingdom in the original language as coming and staying. Now, the transfiguration, you'll remember, it took a few minutes. So it was like, here's the glory, and then it's gone. And you're like, that's not power that came and stayed. Maybe that's a problem that you have here. Well, see, here I think that we have something of the nature of the glorious Christ on display. See, Jesus is about to reveal His power, something that is intrinsic to His nature before He is raised from the dead. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, this text is really kind of amazing. Like here we see that Jesus, before He is raised from the dead, before He is ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father, reveals who He is, His glory, and He is otherworldly, even in His flesh. And they, these disciples, get a preview of His glorious nature that eclipses, catch this, even His post-resurrection appearances, where He was mistaken all the time for all kinds of things. A gardener. Right? I mean, Mary Magdalene, she sees Jesus' first thing and she's like, oh, I thought He was a gardener. Well, it doesn't seem to match up with this glorious vision that Peter, James, and John had. They didn't mistake Jesus for a gardener. Uh, when later we see two men on the road to Emmaus and they meet Jesus, they don't even recognize Him until He's gone. See, we see all kinds of ways that people post-resurrection don't see Jesus in a way that here His glory is revealed in greatness. See, they get a preview of His glorious nature that is amazing. And the vision of Christ pushes, I believe, catch this, your and my attention towards the new heavens and the new earth where there we will see Christ face 
to face. And He shall allow us to see His very glory. Do you long for that day? See, this image is meant to say you ought to long for that day as a believer. Long to see Christ face to face. There is none like Him. Now why is this important? Well, Peter just confessed that Jesus, as the Messiah, will suffer and die. And as soon as he does that, he, he said that he had never let Jesus go to the cross. And as Malachi said last week, Jesus' response to Peter was this, crossless Christianity is satanic. And he told them that they too must take up their crosses and die and live unto God. They must live a life of suffering for the sake of Christ. So with death in full view for everyone that hears this, Jesus offers them a sneak peek into his nature and the glories that await. The point, Jesus wanted the disciples to fix his glorious power firmly in their minds as they took up their crosses and followed him. Do you see it? You're not just suffering for suffering's sake. I want you to know that you are suffering to an end that is the glory of God. Now maybe that's you today. Maybe you are here this morning and you have found that suffering has found you. You didn't go looking for it, right? I mean, doesn't suffering kind of go by the, the, the phrase, don't call us, we'll call you, right? I mean, if you're here this morning and you're like, I've never really suffered, don't worry, it's going to happen. You live in a broken world, it is going to break and it's going to fall on you. It just happens. That's the way the world is. It is broken. The Bible explains that. And maybe this morning you have experienced this kind of brokening in, brokenness in significant ways. See, suffering you were facing this morning, and you, you this morning, as you are experiencing your unique suffering that maybe nobody else in here understands, there is the same solution to it, and that is this. You need to be reminded of the glorious Christ. Many sufferings, many diverse ailments, one cure, a reminder of the glorious Christ. You feel this morning weak and fragile amidst your suffering, and you need to be reminded of the powerful King Jesus who came to defeat sin, death, and the devil in power. When a broken world seems to, ca- to crash in on you, you need to see the king's glory. And maybe that's you this morning. You need a fresh glimpse of something better than everything that is around you and seems so broken. See, when you're a kid, you find out from a, a doctor that they have a disability that you are fearful will stunt their lives. Uh, you need a better message. You need good news. If your family right now, your marriage feels unfixable or your spouse has abandoned you, Or you keep sharing Christ and you continue to get rejected because they reject Jesus. Or you feel like you're in a dead-end job that you know that you're supposed to honor Jesus by being faithful in, but you just don't want to. Or when you're longing for meaningful friendship or a spouse and you feel weak and powerless and are tempted to despair that this life isn't what you wanted or expected, hear me, you need to raise your gaze from yourself in this broken world, to the glorious Christ who tells us that God's kingdom is powerful and powerfully present even when you can't see it. And the best is yet to come. That's the message that we need to hear from Christ this morning. The best is yet to come. But catch this. Some saw Jesus' glory face to face. That, that desire that we have for faith to become sight Uh, they, for a moment, get a glimpse of the glorious Christ face to face. That's what we see in verses 2 to 8, where Jesus is transfigured. Uh, We see something glorious. Now, here's something that I think is important if you want to understand the transfiguration. 
as I said before, the Bible, you know, it fits together. And, and so we need to understand how text of the Old Testament help inform text of the New Testament. And I believe that if you want to understand the transfiguration well, as Mark writes it, we need a little bit of a history lesson from what happened in Exodus with Moses. Because I believe this is a picture that would have reminded any Jew that would have heard this of Moses receiving the law from God in Exodus chapters 24 to 34. Now, now this is what happened. There in Exodus, we're told that Moses went up with three men on a mountain. He took Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu with him, along with 70 elders. And Exodus 24.10 says this, And there they saw the God of Israel. Then the Lord told Moses to come up further alone with him, apart from the 70 and apart from the three. And so he took Joshua with him to receive the law. But, catch this, God called Moses still yet higher alone. And so here's Moses at the highest point of the mountain. And we're told there that the great cloud of the Shekinah glory of God and His presence covered this mountain for six days while Moses was there. And on the seventh day, God spoke to Moses. And he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, We know how that story ends. Moses doesn't even make it down from the mountain with the law, before the people of God had actually turned to idolatry, which was breaking the law. And so, in Exodus 33, God in His mercy uh, is bringing about a renewal of the covenant. And in that process, Moses asked to see the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, there is not much of a bigger ask than that. Now, it might not make sense to you, but there is not much more that anybody in the Bible could ask than to see the glory of God, to see God Himself. Why? Well, because we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, But we are sinners, and there is no way for a sinner to look upon a holy and righteous God in and of Himself. Uh, If we were, uh, we are told that that would be a bad thing. Uh, How do we know that? Well, the Bible itself tells us. In fact, in chapter 34, or or right before that, uh, uh, God says to, to Moses in response, you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face, For man shall not see me and live. I will put you, catch this, in the cleft of a rock, and then I will cover your face with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will remove my hand. Why? Well, because he didn't want Moses to die from seeing him face to face as a sinner. Now in chapter 34, God renews this covenant with Israel, calling Moses back up the mountain. But this time, when Moses returned with the tablets, Exodus 34, 29 says this, Moses did not know that the the skin of his faith shone. It was bright because he had been talking with God. And and it, it shone so brightly that they were fearful of him and they were so scared. Just catch this. It's seeing the reflection coming off of Moses when he stepped outside of the presence of the glory of God that they could not come upon him. Can you imagine the fearfulness of the presence of the glory of God? And how overwhelming. Just the mere reflection brought people to their knees. And it became so bad that that Moses actually had to wear a veil so that when he would speak to people, he would speak through this veil. And when he would speak to God, he would remove the veil to speak to God face to face, except not face to face, right? And so here we see one greater than Moses. We are told that is going to come. In fact, Moses himself said, I might be great before you, but there is one who is greater that I point towards. Deuteronomy 8.15, Moses tells Israel, 
Someone greater than Moses, someone greater than me is coming. The Lord your God, he says, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him that you shall listen. Now, here we see one greater than Moses and Elijah has arrived. Here in in Mark 9. But notice, notice the similarities as we read Mark 9, 2-8. Here what we're going to see is, the glorious Christ is the culmination and the climax of God's revelation of Himself. So look there with me in verses 2-8, to and remember what I just read, or just told you about, about Moses in Exodus. Here's what it says. And after six days, they took with them Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, here, just like Moses in Exodus 24 to 34, You'll notice that it was six days after God spoke of a sacrifice and a new covenant for the people of God that he actually has Jesus revealed. You'll notice that Jesus also takes three guys up with him high on a mountain where they see the glory of God. And Jesus transfigured. His clothes were radiant, intensely, otherworldly, white. Of course, the story is in Luke and Matthew. And Luke in 9.29 adds that his appearance And his face was changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And Matthew 17 too added, His face shone like the sun. Verse 7 says, Jesus too experienced this glory cloud. Which represented the very presence of God. So the transfiguration here looks a lot like the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Where God's people saw God. So you can understand why some look here and they see Jesus as a new Moses who is bringing about a new exodus and a new covenant to create a new people for God. See, Jesus looks a lot like Moses, but we know this, catch this, Jesus is not Moses. And even though as recent as chapter 8, people have mistook him for Elijah, we know he's not Elijah. Now how do we know that he's not Moses and Elijah? Well, because they're looking, and they see Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Three different people. And he says, okay, he's not these two guys, so what's going on? See, they came here, and it's likely here that what we see is, is that these two men have stood behind Jesus. Now, I know that you might have heard some say, that, okay, here, Moses is here and Elijah are here because Moses represents the, the, the law, and then Elijah represents the prophets. I don't think that's right. Uh, one reason is, is because Elijah didn't write any of the prophetic books. Uh, so uh, why would he be representative of them? Uh, I think it's more likely that here what you have are two men who mostly uniquely had visions of God. Both of them on Mount Sinai. Now we don't know where Jesus is on this mountain. Uh, some have said Tabor, that's historical. Others have said Mount Hermon, but we don't know. What's important is, is that Jesus is here on this mountain on this day with these two men who wanted to see God. And, and here, as they are with him, we see that Moses, uh, right here, it makes sense 
that Peter, James, and John are actually terrified. It makes sense as they are in the presence of this event. See, they came as close to seeing the face of God as any human had this side of the Garden Eden, uh, Moses and Elijah. And now Peter finds himself in the presence of these two great men and Jesus. And he blurts out something as Jesus goes solar, uh, something that really doesn't make sense and completely misses the point. And here's what he says. This is great, Jesus, rabbi, teacher. We should make tents and all just sort of camp here for a while. Right? Like, this is great. Can we just, like, get s'mores and, and, and just hang out? Well, that's not what he's talking about, right? He's, he's saying, I want to I create tents to honor and respect you. You three, you three dignified men, teachers, prophets, if you will. Now, friends, let me just say this. When somebody lights up like the sun and the countenance of their face changes, that's not the time where you start going and saying, like, Man, you and your buddies are awesome, right? Like all of you. Like y'all, man, we should just hang out together. That's not the picture that that Jesus was giving here. What Jesus was saying and what Jesus was demonstrating is that he is utterly unique and different than these other two men. Now, fortunately for Peter, he gets interrupted. Now, this is like the best interruption like in the history of time, right? Like he's saying stupid stuff and you're wishing like, would somebody just shut this guy up? And in the middle of it, God the Father himself interjects. And he says, okay, Peter, look, let me help you out. Here's the deal. And and, and here's what he says. God himself, in verse 6, it says, and I love what Mark says about what he says. uh, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Mark apologizes for Peter in his gospel. (laughs) For what he says. And here's here's why they were terrified. Because they did not understand who Jesus was. And here's what God the Father says when he shows up in glory, in this glory cloud. He silences them all by repeating exactly what he said about Jesus at Jesus' baptism. He says this in verses 7 to 8. This, pointing to Jesus, is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, as they looked around, it was only Jesus standing before them. Elijah and Moses were gone. They had disappeared. Now, here what we find, I believe is an utterly unique event, this transfiguration. And here's what's amazing. We are told that no man can look on God and live. How do we know God says so? And yet here on this mountain, Peter, James, and John looked on the glory of God and they lived. Now, catch me. This is, this is not just Jesus pulling a Superman move, right? And saying, let me show you a little bit of glory. How did you like that? That was awesome, right? And then closing it back. Now, this is actually as Jesus is pulling back the veil for a moment to reveal His glory. In that glory, because He is one with the Father, they are seeing the very glory of God. And they live. I don't think we're struck enough by that. See, Jesus is reflecting the very glory of God. And these men, they're going to live to tell about it. In fact, He says, don't say it now, but when I'm raised from the dead, I want you to tell everybody what just happened. Now, how does this happen? See, here's the way that they look on on God and live. It's because Jesus Himself was the veil that shielded them. He is the cleft of the rock that sheltered them so that they might, as sinners, look upon the glory of the Lord as no other man had and catch this, live. Don't miss this. Moses reflected God's glory at Mount Sinai. 
But Jesus revealed the very face of the eternal and living God. Now, I think we see a number of important realities here. I wish we could go through all of them. But there are a number, there are a few that I just want to point out that we can learn from this. First, there is life beyond the grave. That's an easy one. Why would I say that? Well, because we know that Moses died, and yet here Moses is standing with Jesus. And in that image, immediately you have to believe that Peter, James, and John are thinking to themselves, how does this man walk? He was dead, and yet now he lives. And brothers and sisters, that is an encouragement. An encouragement. See, Elijah was taken up to heaven, and he lives too. But Moses died, and they see him, and he is alive. And doesn't this, doesn't this just cause your soul to rejoice that death does not win? Like, that's, this is a, a prequel, right? Like, this is what's about to happen. Like, I'm right now going to show you death doesn't win, and then I'm going to go to defeat death, and then you're going to know again for sure that death doesn't win. So the fear of death, brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you, it does not have to rule your life. You do not have to live in fear of death. Jesus defeated death so that you could have victory over it and live with him forever. I love this. Just the other day, just yesterday, I was in the car with my son Benjamin, and we went to the zoo. And we were on the way home, and he just made this real sweet comment. His poppy had died a couple years ago, his grandfather, and he loved it. He was like his best friend. And he said, you know what I just realized, Dad? When I get to heaven, I'm going to get to see poppy. Let me just say, like that's not the, the ceiling of our expectations in heaven, but boy, if that's even like just somewhere in there, isn't that a good beginning to what the hope is that awaits us in Christ? Just a small portion of what we have to look forward to when we get to be with Christ forever, when he returns for us. See, Moses and Elijah, uh, there we see Moses, they point to Jesus and the hope that we have. But there's a second thing, and that's more important, and that's this, that Jesus reveals the glory of the Father. In John 14, 9, Jesus tells us Himself, whoever sees Me, whoever's seen Me, has seen who? My Father. Like to look on and to behold Me is to behold God the Father Himself. See, Jesus, this is what we need to know about Him here. And what He is telling us is He stands behind Elijah and beside Elijah and Moses. Two great prophets. He says, here I am with these two guys. Let me show you something about Myself. I'm not just a prophet. I'm the God-man. These guys, when I show up, disappear. Like, I am what they looked forward to. He is the only way to the Heavenly Father. Jesus is the only way. You know, I remember um, a while back, I had some friends who were Hindu, and we would talk periodically because they thought they had come to Christ, and we would sit down and talk to them, and they would say something to the effect of, you know, yeah, I accept Jesus. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, do you accept Jesus uh, as your Savior? Yes. Do you accept Jesus uh, and alongside other gods, and they're like, yeah, he's got a place right next to all my other gods. See, that's not the message of the Bible. Jesus is utterly unique. Uh, what we know about Jesus is, not only is he unique as the only way to the Father, we also know that he is greater than the prophets, so that he is completely different than Muhammad or Joseph Smith in the way that he says, you must come to the Father. He's not telling you, I have new news that, that, you, um, that will get you to heaven if you just act just right. He says, you can't act just right. You need to put your faith and be united in me, with me. I'm the only way to the Father. See, Jesus reveals the glory of the Father in the way that no one else does. Moses and Elijah and every other great prophet, they must point to Christ as the only way to the Father. There's a third thing that we see here, though, and that's this, that Jesus, Jesus is both the culmination 
and climax of God's revelation of himself. You know, in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, maybe the author of Hebrews has this event in mind, but he says this long ago, and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by son or by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And catch this, what he says about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the Jesus that we serve. See, all of history, all of the prophets that preceded him are building up, pointing towards Jesus, who is the Messiah that was to come. He is the culmination of what they anticipated. He is the climax of our story. Jesus is the hero of all of our stories. See, Jesus Jesus is the lens through which we understand our Bibles. We are always understanding our Bibles in light of how it points us to Christ and His cross, or looking back to the Christ and the cross and telling us how we understand life in light of that. And the Spirit Himself, we are told, pointed in the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets to Jesus. Did you know that? The, the Bible itself says that when He inspired, when God inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired these prophets, He was pointing them towards Jesus and they saw cloudy but, but it was going to become clear as Christ showed up. 1 Peter 1.11 speaks of this. It says, The prophets of old inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they look forward to. Now, this is why our worship is Trinitarian. And because Trinitarian worship is Christ-centered. If we really are worshiping the triune God, then we are going to be constantly thinking about Jesus. Why? Well, Because God the Father sent the Son so that we might see Him. And the Spirit sent the prophets to tell us about Jesus and who He was so that we might understand Him. And so as we look to Christ, we see God. And that's why we need the Christ, Jesus, to understand who God is and to be brought near to Him so that we might look upon Him. See, the Bible is really about Jesus. And that means that you can't worship Jesus without the Bible. Uh, we can't have a Bibleless service. We can't have Bibleless prayers and songs and Bibleless sermons. We need the Bible because that is where we come to behold the living Christ. Because the Bible isn't the Bible is the Holy Spirit's testimony to us about Christ. But there's a fourth thing that we see here uh, that we can draw from this, and that's this: Jesus is God with us. And catch this: and Jesus is the only reason that we're with God. Let me say that again. Jesus is God with us, and Jesus is the only reason that we're with God. You'll notice that Jesus refused to camp with the disciples. Why? Well, because he had to go to the cross to die for our sins so that he might bring us to God. Now, you might miss the beauty of this, but did you know that Jesus would not be interrupted in his purpose of dying on the cross to bring you face to face with God? He would not be interrupted. He would not in any way be deterred. It would have been easy to find something else to do, but he would not be deterred in his mission of bringing you near to God at the very cost of his own blood. He wasn't going to stay and build a booth or a tent. He says, I've got stuff to do. I've got to go to the cross so that you can meet with God. And so you might not only, not only 
not die in His presence for looking on God. See, Jesus came so that you might not only not die in His presence and looking on God, but also that you might live forever with Him as a child. See, friends, this morning, let me just encourage you, if you are a non-Christian, the gospel is a sweet message to you. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You can be a child of God by faith. So let me just encourage you, if you have not done that, put your faith in Christ today. And I want you to know that what the message of the cross is to you is that Jesus ran to the cross for you, would not be deterred so that you might be rescued. You know what your response should be for him? Uh, You should run to the cross for mercy where Jesus ran one mercy for your behalf. That's your message today. But for Christian, if you are feeling weak today because of the sufferings of this life, uh, you need to remember that those sufferings of this life are met with the glorious Christ who is for you now and forever. Uh, That's what Christ wants us to remember today. That the glorious Christ is with you even amidst your sufferings. And the the end is incredibly bright. I, I love... The, the way that the Bible says that the glory that awaits us is for today in part, but there's more that's yet to come. We see it today, God's presence with us, His help for us, and the glorious Christ working in us in all kinds of text. Now, did you know that the glory is for today? Philippians, Philippians 2, 12-13 promises us that God is working in you right now. Uh, that's where we're told that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the promise for for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. So God is working in you, his glorious presence in and through you right now. And Paul says that when he is weak in this life, even as God is working through him, he knows that he is strong. Why? Because Christ works powerfully through weakness. Why? Why does he work so powerfully through weakness? Because it's when we are weak that God really gets all the glory, Right? I mean, when we're strong, we're like, look what I did. And when we're weak and things happen, we're like, look what God did. Maybe you're weakened this morning. Weakened and discouraged. Let me just encourage you. Could it be? Could it just be this morning? I just want to challenge you to think about it this way. Could it be that things aren't quite what they seem to your physical eyes? Whatever it is that you're suffering. Not that the suffering isn't real. Not the suffering isn't bad. But could it be that in your weakness, God is actually doing something powerful that you're just missing? Maybe this morning, uh, you have some sickness, chronic pain, you have some kind of disability, and you are thinking to yourself, I am so weak, and this prevents me from being able to be used by God to my fullest extent, and yet God says, you're you're getting this all wrong. Uh, That thing, that, that sickness that you have, that struggle that you're facing, I am glorifying myself in and through you in ways that you could not imagine and so much better than a healthy you that could bring about. Maybe it's just that God's doing that. Not that I wouldn't want you healed, but isn't it just like God to do something amazing in places that we would not expect? Could it be that maybe this morning you're actually at the perfect place for God to work most abundantly through you? You're just bearing of your sin like never before. And you're thinking completely unusable because you're overwhelmed by how broken and sinful you are before God in a way that you've never sensed or felt before. And therefore you feel unusable because of your sinfulness. And yet, in this, in this moment, could it be that God is doing a powerful work in your heart such that the Holy Spirit is at work in you 
so that you have been caused to see your sin for what it is like, like never before, and that you are being sanctified. And for the first time, you are actually looking to Jesus for help and holiness, for help that only He can provide. Or maybe you feel this morning like you don't have meaningful relationships. And God is training you in your sense of loneliness. He is training you to look to Christ in those moments because there is someone that you're going to come across who needs a friend that looks like Jesus and that points to Jesus. And you're in a training camp right now for a relationship that's coming. Are you going to be willing to love that person and be the friend that you want to them? Are you going to point them to Christ? could be that God is working that in your life. Maybe this morning you also right now are desperate and sad and you just need once again to have your eyes lifted up to see the glorious Christ. Maybe it's everyone that you've shared Christ with has rejected the gospel. But God promises His word has never returned void and maybe that word that you have, you have shared with so many is actually growing up in ways that you will never see until you get to the other side of heaven. See, I believe this paradox of suffering Things not working the way that they ought to. This broken world, the suffering that we face, and the glory that is to come. It's actually a picture of our lives until Jesus returns. Full of glory and God at work in ways that we might not see. And suffering. Like that's what this world is. Now if you're you're not in Christ, it's just suffering. But if you're in Christ, it's suffering and the glory of God being manifested. But don't lose sight of God amidst your suffering, brothers and sisters. Remember, the great people of God and Jesus himself suffered like Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Now, I believe that this is important. Uh, You'll notice that our text ends in verses 9 to 13, where it says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does not come first to restore all things. And how is it written to the Son of Man that he should suffer for many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever it pleases, as it is written of him. Now it's interesting, commentators will notice here that they are paying more attention to what the scribes have said about Elijah than what the Bible says. But I think what's most important is, is they are missing the point still yet. They miss that Jesus himself, the glory of God, has shown up before them. And I believe that that what this text wants us to see is that the transfiguration tells us that the glorious suffering Christ is the culmination and climax of God's revelation to us. But catch this, it also tells us that just like Elijah faced suffering and rejection all of his days and then was taken up into heaven, we too await that glory. See, this this also tells us of the plans that Jesus has for us. It's not just about who Jesus is, it's mostly about that, but it also points towards what we have hope in. See, this is the tension that we live in between suffering and glory. We live in this tension between the two. Paul spoke of this in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this tension. He says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, light and momentary afflictions, that's what we see. An immeasurable and eternal weight of glory that awaits, that's what is to come. So it's not just about the now, it's about the future. 
See, I believe that this is so critical, brothers and sisters, as we close. Because a healthy Christian life really is, I believe, centered on understanding this tension between the glory of God and our suffering and how they fit together. They both coexist. And if we have a healthy balance of an understanding of these, understanding that God has given us His glory, that we await greater glory that is to come when we see Him face to face, what we know is is that we have a helpful balance that protects us from triumphalism on the one side and the nihilism on the other. In other words, in our Christian walk, we need to remember that, that we will suffer, but God is also gloriously at work in that. And if we remember that well, then it's going to protect us from saying, hey, Christians always win. Like, it's great. If you come to Jesus, you will never have a hard day again. Like, you'll always strike it on the, the, the lottery. Uh, all the marriages will be healed, and, and nothing's hard ever again. Well, we need to remember, no, this is a broken world where we experience the suffering of this world just as Jesus did. Like, we're going to experience that. And so we need to remember that to protect us against that kind of triumphalism. We need to make sure that we're not just singing songs about, you know, like, we believe in Jesus, so we've won ever since. Like, that's not the reality. We suffer as Christians. It protects us from triumphalism. But on the other hand, maybe, maybe this morning you are suffering and you're an elish. You've just kind of given up on God. Maybe you're not, you know, not believing in God anymore. Like, theologically, you know He exists. But, like, you're just like, why even try? Because it seems like everything fails. And we need to remember about the glorious presence of God who is at work at us, even in ways that we don't see. And often, we can't see the glory of what God is doing in us. The, the angels in heaven look down and see it, and we don't see it right in front of our faces. Why? It's because we are waiting for Jesus to come back and give us that face-to-face view that we all long for. Brothers and sisters, let's live in that tension in a way that brings glory to God.